0: In the unsurpassed, sin-treating and and perfect karma, is there we met a hundred thousand million
1: Kalpas, and we get to see and listen to, to remember and accept.
0: Good morning. good
1: morning. It's one of those uh, overcast midsummer days here in the uh, Bay Area, and thank you all for coming out. There's a pretty good crowd in the Zendo. Our numbers seem to be increasing, uh, so please take care of yourselves. Um, some housekeeping announcements before I get into the substance of my talk. Uh, first of all, just to let you know that tomorrow evening, seven o'clock, uh, I'll be part of a Dharma music uh, circle at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery on uh, McKinley Avenue, about a half mile from here in Berkeley. Uh, I think that information on that is that you can find it online at Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. Maybe somebody can find that and put it in the chat. Uh, and uh, it'll be in person, and also there'll be it'll be live streamed. Uh, and it's quite a wonderful assortment of musicians. Aside from myself, there's Reverend Hung who's the abbot. Uh, Betsy Rose, uh, Eve Decker, and James Barras. Uh, And we're going to be sharing songs and uh, actually hopefully doing some singing along together with everyone. So that's tomorrow evening at seven. Um, Beginning in uh, the fall. We're going to have the second round of our Many Communities, One Sangha program, which is a, a program in uh, investigating uh, the way we think about our community, the way we think about ourselves, about diversity, and to have some uh, really frank and uh deep inquiry about our the way we see the world which of course is to me that's uh, that is at the heart of our buddhist practice so we've done one round uh we did a it was about 10 or 11 months and it was led by the wonderful teacher uh Rhonda McGee and we had meetings with her uh, every other month and meetings of small groups and we're going to use roughly the same format uh, and you can find more about that on the Berkeley Zen Center uh, website. The signups are uh, hopefully where people will sign up by September 10th and will begin sometime in October. Um, Starting on Wednesday, I'll be offering office hours in my office on the courtyard from 1230 until about three. And that's basically, there's no format. If you want to come by and talk and visit, uh, uh, it's very informal, just knock on the door and come on in. And I'll be doing that, this sign, there'll be a sign on the porch, uh, on a bulletin board, and also on my door, I'll be doing that on Mondays and Wednesdays, starting this Wednesday, from about 12.30 to 3. And so you're welcome to come by and
2: uh,
1: chat, visit, uh, we can share our arts, and so forth. Um, I'm observing, I just saw in the newspaper and was reminded that today is the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington, uh, the Civil Rights March on Washington uh, in 1963. Were any of you there? I can't see who that is. Hannah. Yeah. I was there. Uh Uh-huh. That's how old I'm getting to be. Uh, I, went, I was in—I um, was going into eleventh grade, uh, and me and my friends all—we were all there. Uh, and I remember where I was standing when I was listening to the speeches. But just sixty years, and we're still working on the same stuff. Uh, there have been changes and progress. And there are areas where we're still wrestling with the dynamics of uh, race in our country uh, and of equality, equal rights, voting issues. Uh, The march was before the voting acts of 1964 and 65. And now, frankly, in my estimation, we're we're seeing new attacks on uh, the dimensions of democracy in our country. And so it always has to be defended. And so it's good to remember. what happened in 60 years ago. I want to say it was really exciting. Uh, I remember uh, we were bused. We took buses from New York suburbs down through the Jersey Turnpike then driving through Washington and everyone was out in the streets. And then when we got there, it just were more people than any of us had ever seen in one place. And the energy was, was just so positive and warm. And uh, we need that. We needed it then, we need it now. So, okay, take a breath. want to talk today about shikantaza our practice of just sitting of just being and what i think that what that means to me and what it means in the circumstances the ever changing circumstances of our life Just, I was thinking about it. this morning, just now, before the talk, I was sitting in uh, my office. And some of you have been in there, you know, when you come in the door, there is a uh, tall, skinny, bony tree uh, that was given to Sojin quite a long time ago a cutting from the Bodhi tree in uh, Bodhgaya, which is not the original Bodhi tree that Buddha uh, sat under, but uh, it's been there for a very long time. And this is a cutting and uh, he's carefully taken care of it and uh, I really appreciate Ross uh, Blum comes in and waters it regularly. Uh, so, about a month and a half ago, every leaf on that tree fell off, turned brown, and fell. And my recollection was that this had happened before. But I wasn't quite certain of it, you know, we brought in people to look at it, it, it was startling. And uh, we sort of wondered, what now? Is this the natural lifespan uh, of this tree that we loved and appreciated, and maybe now we have to let it go? And there were various opinions about whether it was pot pound or whether this was a natural cycle or, you know, some mysterious tree disease. Uh, And after a couple of weeks, if you looked carefully, there seemed to be some very tiny green growth. Uh, which gave me a little hope. And if you go in there now, there's profusion of there, there are more leaves than were on it before. and they are bright green and flexible. And also there's a I don't know Ross, if you saw it, there's a there's a new shoot coming out from at the base of the tree. Uh, it's alive, it just had to go through some cycle of
0: regeneration.
1: This is the nature of our, of our lives, of our existence. And things are born, and they die, and maybe they're born again, and they just go through this cycle. But for those of us who are standing, or sitting, And watching, it's not so easy to just sit there. Not so easy to take it in. So in late July, uh, after quite a long period of studying and preparation, I gave Dharma Transmission to uh, two of our members, our priests who are here, they're here now, to Carol Paul and Hannah Mera. Uh, and that was an incredibly joyous occasion. Really marks the it's a recognition of the maturity of their practice. And how much they've offered to the Sangha over a very long period of time. And we also hope that we will be the beneficiaries of more years of their offerings. Uh, and I was honored to officiate in these ceremonies uh, as I feel very close to the to Anna and Carol and I admire their practice. Last year, while I was planning for this, uh, my Dharma brother, zin Red Fein, fain uh, who lives at Tassahara, uh was ordained here, uh, asked if there was any possibility that he could uh, do a Dharma transmission for do his first armor transmission for one of his students, uh, because he had no real, there was no place that was really suitable for him to do it. And I suggested that he uh, throw in with us and we would all do this together. And uh, His student's uh, name is Curtis Fabens, great resolve, complete openness. And just to say, I invited Greg because I really feel that this place, the Sendo, and this community that was founded and uh, shaped by Sojin Roshi is a home for all of Sojin's students and disciples and I want to make it available to them and so uh, Greg was totally welcome. Uh, So Greg showed up and Curtis showed up on the 23rd of July and we had a week of ceremonies. Curtis had had some chronic illness which limited his capabilities and so we drew a around a number of senior students to help him with his calligraphy and with other elements of the ceremonies. And it was just a great, I think, feel like we all made a great connection with him and together. uh, And it really felt like something we were doing all together. Uh, And so on Saturday, the 29th of July, uh, all the ceremonies were complete. And if some of you were here that day, three of them gave uh, a talk about their experience, which is very wonderful. Um, Two weeks, less than two weeks after that, uh, Greg called me to say that
2: uh,
1: Curtis had died a few days earlier, uh, which shook all of us to the core. And so we had the really challenging experience of having the joy of these transmissions and having the the great sorrow of losing a friend in in an untimely way. Uh, His death was a result of this very serious chronic condition that he had. Uh, And it's not exactly that it was expected, but it's something that can happen, and he was pretty young. I think he was less than fifty, wasn't he? Uh-huh. And left a, a family, a wife, and a daughter. So, as I had said in a, part, I'd seen a talk about dharma transmission uh, just before we started the process. There's a, um, the scholars point out that our transmission process and, in fact, the whole structure of our practice is, uh, it mirrors uh, the way East Asian families look at each cultures look at family, it's a family model. Uh, and, you know, it relates to those really deep Confucian roots. Uh, and it's really the transmission of family values, honoring the ancestors, honoring our parents, honoring our sisters and brothers. Uh, And we see this not just in, it's not just a matter of transmission, it's also uh, in all of our ordinations but also it's in the spirit of our practice. To me, it is there, in a way, at the heart of the just sitting that we do. So I was looking the other day we were uh, at a residence meeting here we read from read an excerpt from uh, what's going to be in Sojourn Roshi's book which is coming out in December and it was a piece that he wrote on Shikantaza. And so I want, to, I want to read that as a, as kind of some context for what I'm talking about. So Sojan writes, We call our practice Shikantaza. Shikantaza means something like just to sit. To just do means acting without self or ego or some extra pur- purpose. This is the opposite of a materialistic way of life. Much of our usual effort is materialistic, to have or accumulate or to improve. Shikantaza is the other side, which is just to be. What I would interject here is that uh, what I'm thinking is, it's the just being side of doing. So you think about, go back a moment, think about the Bodhi tree. The Bodhi tree is just being, but it's also doing something. It's generating and regenerating itself as it as it has, as it as it has the capacity, the natural capacity. So it's it's not just me. Uh, the being is manifest in doing, and the doing is manifest in being. I hope that makes some sense, I want to explore it a little further. So, uh, Sultan writes, when we practice to be, sometimes our materialistic side, desire, raises questions like, where is this going? What do I get from this? Those are natural questions to ask. But if we want something in a materialistic sense, we should not seek it in zazen. There may be many things to accomplish, but zazen is just to be. If you can settle on just being, you can experience your completeness. But if self-centered desire takes over, we are easily pulled off our seat. Shikantaza is a. To- this is again codeine. Shikantaza is a total offering, holding nothing back, merge completely. Be complete. Sit with your whole body and mind with full function and complete intention. It's hard. It's very hard to be here, completely awake and merged with reality, moment after moment. But if you're completely emerged in Zazen, you won't be pulled by desires. Your body and mind will be refreshed, ready, and open for the next moment. He says, and I think this is the pivotal point, we have to live our life in the world of desire, and at the same time, being free from it. Choosing to continue our act of samadhi. I would rewrite this a little bit. There's something in the expression to be free from it. Which seems to imply not to be touched by it. So what I would say is We have to live our life in the world of desire, and at the same and at the same time, be free in it. And here again, just he doesn't say this, but I think he's bringing together what I was speaking about as just doing and just being as one thing. He says when we're engaged in selfless activity Mm
0: -hmm.
1: our samadhi is very strong and we come to enjoy pure activity more than we enjoy selfish activity. Mm -hmm. We practice zazen and learn which is which. The bodhi tree Letting its leaves fall and regenerating is selfless activity. There's an effort. Somehow the tree has to draw all the nutrients up through its trunk, into the branches, out to the stems and the buds, and generating something alive and new and amazing. When we look at our children, we see the same thing. How how does that happen? How did they grow from these small beings in uh, who live in, in literally the wonderful world, bewildering? <laughs> Come to have a sense of competence, a sense of self, a sense of function and purpose in their lives. That's us. We were those children. We still are those children. So we look at the joyous celebration of our sisters and brother in dharma transmission, that is an arising dharma moment. And it's the manifestation of selfless activity. And maybe in a way you could think that Curtis's death, is also a moment of selfless activity for him. I don't know. I don't know how to think about death, but certainly it's the dropping away of the immediate concerns of his life. But how is it for us? How do you carry it? How do I carry it? So I want to suggest that I was thinking this morning,
0: Um can think of
1: Shikantaza on the micro level and on the macro level. On the micro level, what we're learning as we sit is to, so Shikantaza, let me just Say, the practice of Junkan Taza, what's unique to, I think, our style of practice is simply allowing thought after thought, perception after perception, feeling after feeling, to arise, just naturally, unobstructed, not to make, not to construct things of it. To allow it to arise, allow that moment to arise, and allow it to uh, fall away, and make room for the next moment. It's a it's a practice of uh, open open minded meditation. It's a practice of a uh, a very complete kind of receptivity, moment-by-moment moment receptivity. So moment-by-moment moment we, we have perceptions, we hear things, we feel things, we see things, uh, we think things, we have tides, rapid tides of emotion that may come over us. And we accept it. So this is the the selfless activity of it is not to build a structure of self on whatever it is we're perceiving. But just to say, this is what's happening now. And you may like it, you may not like it but it's, it's happening, and to understand, as we go on in practice, to understand its essential impermanence, so that, that moment is going to shift. Uh, so on a micro level, we understand this, we're examining this moment by moment as we, as we sit in the zendo. The zendo is our laboratory for really experiencing the nature of mind and the nature of our experienced reality. On the macro level, I think what we can draw from our zazen practice is, how do we meet the events of our life? Those moments may not slip away so quickly. They actually may condition us. And yet we can still understand This is a conditioned reality. It's not something permanent. It's not something fixed. Right now, I mean, when you look at... This is a practice that I do when... when I get triggered by something which does happen. I'm sure it doesn't happen to any of you, but but it happens to me. Uh, When I get triggered by something, I actually tell myself, this feels really bad right now. I'm angry or I'm hurt or I'm grieving. And I ask myself, literally ask myself, let's see how this feels in an hour. Let's see how this feels tonight or tomorrow. And then I I revisit it. You know, it hurts a lot right now. And actually, what I may have to do is step back from it. I may have to just step back and breathe or step back and do something that is nurturing, you know, rather than confront step back and allow for the possibility, or not the possibility, allow for the, the likelihood that it's going to feel different with the passage of time, and to examine that if I can, to examine, even look at the process, how does this shift? So, we celebrate, you know, the transition for Hannah and Carol and we grieve the loss of our friend and all of us are experiencing this in all kinds of dimensions of life, some of you who are younger, may not have had a lot of loss yet, some of you may, but all of us, as we move along the path of life, there is no avoiding the sense of loss. The loss of loved ones, the loss of these, unfolding generations, our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation, our parents' generation. And for some of us now, it's like, oh, it's our turn to leave the stage. This is fucking hard. I don't like it. And we see also losses that we experience ourselves. Health conditions all kinds of circumstances which are totally, they natural, how do we hold them? How do we hold them with an engagement in selfless activity, recognizing that we are living in the world of desire and at the same time, how do we find freedom in it? One more little story, and then I'll have to open for comments and questions. Um, for quite a long time, I've been teaching at the, uh, at the Upaya Zen Center's chaplaincy training program. Uh, and we just had our uh, one of our training intensives for the year. And we were doing an intensive on, we were doing a unit on social justice, chaplaincy and social justice. And they asked me if I could set up a uh, meeting online with uh, Jarvis J. Masters. Some of you may know him. Jarvis Masters is a uh, He's an African-American man who's been on death row for 42 years in San Quentin. And I've been visiting him, and I count him as a friend since uh, about 1998. Uh, He's a writer, and he's a Buddhist practitioner. And he also, he's innocent. I'm not going to go into the details of his case, but I am totally convinced of his innocence. And we've been working on his appeal, which is hard and anxiety producing. At any anyway, rate, we set up this thing and he talked with people. And in the midst of that circumstance he seems to have preserved a kind of basic sanity and actually the first book that he wrote is entitled finding freedom so it's like finding freedom in this world of desire finding freedom in this world of repression and injustice. And everyone was incredibly moved. Uh, To hear somebody report from the actual conditions of their lives is very important. We need to do this for those we care about, to tell them how things are, and we need to listen to them. And just to close, uh, we took a lot of questions and answers, and uh, Jarvis answered them just with with such remarkable clarity. I, I was really moved, and one of the questions was, What do you most wish for? You know, what is your your deepest desire? And what he said was, uh to walk out at night under the stars and to feel the grass beneath my feet. And for 40 years, he has not had that capability. There is no grass at San Quentin. And every night, they're locked away in their cells. So, this simple desire that we may not even be thinking of can be someone's deepest desire. And we hold that, that is folding in, that's now folded into my sense of being. So our being is not just enclosed in ourselves. It's what we learn from others. Because our being does not, is not just solitary. Our being is collective. Our being is how we are involved with each other, and that goes for how it is when we're sitting together. That's why the form of our sitting is we sit next to each other. We don't sit in caves or Cells, we sit next to each other because we're manifesting the fact that we are actually together, and that our shikantaza is a collective act. So I'm going to stop there, and we have some time for uh, questions and answers and comments, and uh, you can pass the microphone wait till the microphone gets to you. And if those of you are online, feel free to um, raise your digital hand, and I will uh, look for you and try to call on you uh, in sequence with everyone else. Good morning, Jose. Good morning. Good morning. You spoke about the world of desire, and I'm wondering if you could comment on the other two worlds, the world of form and formlessness, and how they inform each other and help us uh, with our desires. Mm -hmm. The world of desire is something we create out of the world of form. It's just kind of, it's our habitual nature. Uh, The world of form is always there. And as we know from our endless reciting of the Heart Sutra, the world of form and the world of formlessness uh, do not act, do not exist independent of each other. Each one is creating the other. But our human pattern, uh the pattern of clinging to self which is also one of the uh one of the great the the, the problem of cleaning self, is some of the great teachings of the heart sutra uh, is that we create this world of desire uh which is neither real nor unreal we have to live with it but we also have to see through it. We have to see uh, both the form, and we really need to see the formlessness within the realm of desire.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> Um, I don't know how other people felt, but, um, I just thought it was like miraculous that Curtis got transmission and died two weeks later. I just kept thinking about that. Like he was waiting for that transmission to leave this world. And it just made me value transmission. It was like his life had come to some point of completion. Uh, and then he could move on. Yeah, that's how I thought about it. I didn't know him personally, um, but I don't know how other people thought because I know another, one of our senior um, practitioners had wanted transmission and was dying and we gave her transmission um, because that was her last desire. Yeah. Um, but in this case, he reached that, and that was the end of what he needed to accomplish on this plane. So I thought it was very beautiful. Thank not you. Not for, his wife, but sure yeah. you know, she didn't think so. But, but. Right. so
1: I think what what comes up as you're to me as you're speaking is this other uh, fundamental human activity. We think that desire perhaps as a fundamental manifestation of her humanity. The other thing, which is really unique, is that uh, we are uh, story-making you beings. So you made up a little story, right? the story that he was waiting to complete this. and. I don't have any criticism that at all. That's, that's what we do. Uh, and you can, there's all kinds of stories. And the, the thing that I'm grateful for is that I don't know what it means. But what I do know is that, and this is my story,
0: <laughs>
1: I'm happy that he completed this. I'm happy that he got to see that, that process that he was in to the end. And uh, that's, we can't wish any more for anyone. And there's so much that, that he left incomplete and we will leave incomplete. But we also have to honor the things that we do complete. Thank you. Yes.
2: Thank you. Um, What's your name, by the way? Monique. Monique. Huh? Um, sorry, I got really fixed on what you were responding, so my question kind of faded a little bit. Um, but it has to do with uh, sitting. I haven't sat for a while to really think about my own process my own process of sitting. Um but I guess like my question is is um has to do with how long I sit with the thoughts that come to me and then you know let, let them go or let them pass. Um, because for me I'm thinking like okay, well how long is how long is too long? How long is a moment in which I'm sort of like relishing too much, and then where, where, how do I come back? I do think when I'm staring at the wall, so this is really hard for me. When I'm staring this way and then I sense the community around me, I think it's a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just wondering, like, how long is it moment? I don't have a, I don't have a
1: a particular uh, answer and I don't, I've never put a stopwatch on it. Um, I think that this is an ongoing, this is the experiment of Sazen, that um, there are meditational techniques and uh methods where you're given a very clear instruction as to what to do that's not what we're doing this uh i really like i've been thinking a lot about this expression of suzuki roshi's we have uh formal practice and informal mind so informal mind means uh, each of us has to find out for ourselves and we develop our skill and our depth by exactly exploring the question that you're asking you know so if the thought is really or the feeling is really present for you let it last as long as it needs to. And, you know, if keep in the background, I think, uh, in the background, or move to the foreground, your breath, your breath and your posture. So as soon as you, if you put your mind, if you move your mind to your breath and your posture, then you can find out what kind of hold that thought has on you. And if you find that the thought or perception has a really strong hold on you, well, you'll discover, you know, I can't really attend to my breath and posture right now. So I have to uh, attend to this thought and maybe what I need to do is make an effortful is breathe into it in an effortful way. So, this is it's just a big experiment. So, just keep at it. Is there anyone out there, uh, uh, Joel? Oh, I'm sorry, Paolo was first, and then Joel. Um, thank you, Hosan. Hosan, um, I have this kind of like ongoing thing in my mind, and and. Um, Sometimes it's clear and sometimes end up confused, but, um, it's very clear with Zazen that we're not, um, we're not, you know, we're not cultivating thoughts. We're not sitting and and thinking, and that is not Zazen, but in the study and practice of, of Buddha Dharma, there's a place for contemplation. And sometimes I'm not sure where the proper vehicle, what's the vehicle for contemplation and can it fit into zazen sometimes without getting wrapped wrapped up where, where does one end and the other one begin and isn't there a, a place for contemplating dharma um yeah there is and that's that's also uh that's also one kind of practice and again that's not where our emphasis is So for me, my contemplation is uh, when I'm sitting and thinking or studying uh, but sometimes I have to do that contemplation while I'm sitting. Sometimes. There's nobody who's going to tell you what to do. That's the problem. The problem is that we yearn for somebody to tell us, Please tell me exactly what to do. It's not gonna happen. Uh, So, uh, but we're given, we are given an instruction. uh, And Shikantasa is an instruction. So see if you can give that primacy. Joel? Hi. Thank you so much. That was really beautiful. One thing you said, which really struck me and surprised me actually, was at one point you said something like, I don't think about death.
0: No, I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: something like that. And I, so I felt that that was very surprising. It was it had nothing to do with that. What I said was, I don't know what to think about death. Yeah. Oh, sorry. That makes so much more sense. I don't know either. (laughs) Okay. That's reassuring. Well, anyway, while we're on it, um, obviously, I mean, we've all been totally immersed in our thoughts about Curtis and um, you've studied and practiced Buddhist chaplaincy. So maybe um, you could enlarge about how you don't think about death or something like that it's endlessly there in our lives well it is and all I can you know as it what a chaplain does is yeah. he's a company a chaplain goes uh comes alongside of a person a person who is suffering in whatever form of suffering it is uh But they can't become that person. Mm -hmm. They don't merge so much as they feel empathy with. And when it comes to death, you know, a hospice chaplain can accompany somebody only so far and no farther. Mm -hmm. They have to cross that threshold by themselves. And you stand there and watch in grief, in awe, in whatever feeling arises, Uh, but you're not going to travel with them right there until it's your turn to walk over this threshold and uh, yeah. That's, that's all I'll say. I think it's time for one more in the room. Yeah, I'll go.
0: Um, something the past two days have been noticing in practice, and I'm curious if you have any suggestions on how to notice or how to practice with this is, on the co-arising of suchness and impermanence. Like you're talking about the Bodhi tree until like with practice, really in an embodied sense, recognize that the trees die and the leaves die and will come back. But you know, when things die, they're born. but also that, like, in this moment of death, we're just completely like burned up by dying. Yeah. Um. And I guess this question
2: is a little bit informed by my reading of some commentary on how to cook your life. So, just context of a question.
0: So, what's the question? Uh, how do we like work with noticing this?
1: Noticing.
0: Suchness and impermanence.
1: Ah um, you'll notice it. You'll, you'll get it. Um, you should excuse me. You're, you're young and you have a deep soul. And you will, you can't avoid thinking about that. Coming to it because it's going to come to the life of those around you and you'll experience it yourself. Um, Dogen says, uh, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to remember exactly
0: the quote. Uh,
1: I think it's, it's something like the experience of um, Buddha nature is seeing into the essence of impermanence. It's something like that, I may have got the words a little wrong, but that's it. So. This is another way of describing our practice, it's really uh, experiencing and investigating impermanence. And I will say, I'll leave you with my, also, my completion of my favorite Dogen quote. Uh, Dogen says, um, When Dharma fills your body and mind, you realize that something is missing. You realize that something that things are impermanent. Uh, and My completion of that is when Dharma fills your body and mind, you realize that something is missing and that's just fine.